welcome to another episode of On The Mic. I'm your host, Dani Osman, and my guests today are academics Sharon George and Donald Lowe. They've co-written a new book called PAP vs PAP, which draws on their many years of commentary on the Singapore government and politics. We spoke about what's in the book, and they also shared their views on Singapore's political developments since the 2020 general election. So without further ado, here's the interview. Thank you both for taking the time to do this. Um, I hope things are going well for you guys in Hong Kong. Yes, indeed. Thanks very much. Okay, so let's jump into things. Um, this new book that you have coming out, PAP versus PAP, could you tell me what it's about and what inspired you both to collaborate to write it? Sharon, you want to take that first? Um, okay, I'll, I'll start and then you can continue. Well, Donald and I have been writing you know, on and off about Singapore for, for years, right? So uh, to, um, uh, to write about Singapore again just kind of comes naturally. But the uh, sort of immediate impetus for this particular uh, work uh, was, I guess, uh, the sense that uh, it can't be business as usual in Singapore. Right, for a mix of reasons. Uh, number one, of course, the disruption of the pandemic. But even aside from that, you know, signs that we were detecting that uh, Singapore's governance model needed a, a revamp. Uh, you know, and as we um, grew convinced that uh, this was increasingly the case, you know, thought that it was time to uh, put our thoughts together and um, and share them with our fellow citizens. Yeah, I would. I'll just add that, you know, what the pandemic has revealed as, and also I think what became clear over the course of uh, GE 2020 was that serious questions, serious doubts have emerged over Singapore's model of elite governance, right? And we've always valorized, we've always prioritized having a strong, competent uh, elite government. I think what the pandemic has shown is it needs to go beyond that, right? Because what challenges like the pandemic, and we can expect more of such crises going forward, is that, you know, you can't just rely on a small group of uh, technocrats or elite uh, officials to, 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 to guide the country. And you really need to complement our strong state with uh, what scholars call a strong society. And that comes from, uh, that usually comes from having institutions that tap on uh, a wider pool of talent. Uh, it calls for institutions for democratic participation and engagement. So as Sharon says, it cannot be business as usual. I think the pandemic as well as the events of 2020 have revealed to us that we really need a more resilient, more resilient forms and more resilient institutions uh, in government. And what are the topics you guys touch on in the book? Um, could you give us like a chapter outline? Yeah, so in part one, we kind of look at what has changed, right, uh, in 2020. So we have a couple of essays on the pandemic. We also look at, you know, the elections of uh, GE 2020, which I think also surfaced surprisingly uh, issues that we thought had been, you know, had didn't warrant, uh, uh, you know, uh, that the sort of emphasis or focus uh, that that we saw in in the general election. So that that's part one. You know how how the environment, how the operating context has changed. Uh, and then in part two of the book, we look at you know why this new context uh, that has been precipitated by the pandemic demands uh, a number of things. Right, one of which is greater accountability, but also greater economic and social justice. Uh, mm-hmm. And you saw that express itself in various dimensions over the course of twenty twenty. Right. 
whether it's uh, the support, the, 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 the absence of automatic support for uh, low-income Singaporeans or unemployed Singaporeans, uh, or even issues around uh, cultural diversity uh, that surfaced in G2020. So, so all these are various manifestations of uh, so economic and social justice. And I think what they surface is that you know, we really need to craft or, 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 or create a new social compact. Uh, and, and then finally, in part three, uh, we present you know, some suggestions on how we can start the process of democratic deliberation and, uh, and, and bring on board a wider array of uh, viewpoints on how we should organize and run ourselves politically. Mm-hmm. So the third part is on uh, accountability, uh, democracy, and you know, toleration of uh, dissent. Sharon, you want to add on? Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, in all these um, grand ideas that we present, you know, uh, some of them may appear uh, radical, provocative to uh, Singaporeans who are not used to hearing them, but uh, we both very strongly feel that uh, they are actually well within what Donald called nicely, you know, the PAP's ideological range, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, These, in fact, should not be considered to be beyond the pale by a national movement that has always prided itself in taking a broad church approach mm-hmm. uh, to government and politics. Yeah, uh, they, they may seem, some of these ideas may seem uh, unfamiliar to the people who are currently holding power. Uh, but if you take the long view of what the, where the PAP has come from and where the PAP could go, there's talk of uh, SG100, right, that PAP could be around about 50 years. If you take this long view, the kinds of ideas that we're talking about uh, should be uh, con- almost conventional wisdom, I would say. There's nothing, there's nothing to be alarmed about or mm-hmm. struck about. And, and in fact, the, the, very, the, uh, the very fact that we even have to uh, kind of um, expect the uh, government and some of its supporters, right, uh, to to feel that the, the ideas that we're presenting uh, are somehow uh, radical is itself a worry to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, a, a, a society that is as developed, as well-educated as ours uh, should be comfortable with uh, a, a range of ideas. And the, the very fact that it is not uh, is itself a symptom of the problems that we are talking about, yeah? the narrowing of the Singapore mind, as it were. And why choose to call it PAP versus PAP? Is it about the fact that the biggest challenge or or the biggest um, thing that's holding the PAP back may be within its own party? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, uh, but I should I should um, quickly so hasten to add, you know, uh, that um, this is not. A story about a split between individuals in the party, mm-hmm. which is conventionally how Singaporeans have always thought about uh, PAP being divided. No, I think that is simplistic, right? Uh, while it is uh, certainly true that there might be uh, leaders with more hardline instincts and those with more liberal instincts, you know, we hardly go into that because really what we are uh, more concerned with uh, is a kind of a tension. Uh, within the the PAP that I think transcends individuals. This is a clash between different kinds of approaches. Uh, And yes, Danny, as you say, that we we think that actually what is holding back the PAP, the the fork in the road, as it were, that that, uh, confronts the PAP right now, uh, is really, uh, it's within its own mind. 
yeah? mm -hmm. that it has choices to make that can uh, decide whether the KB continues to be the, the lead movement in the Singapore story, or whether it is going to, you know, uh, degenerate into mediocrity and just another party. Uh, so the choice is within the PAP, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, and this is what we try and get at. Yeah, just to add on, it's, it's, it's also called PAP versus PAP, I think, because, you know, we try to highlight the contest between two impulses, at least two impulses, within the ruling party, right? The first is its capacity for adaptation. It's the fact that it is an elite, expert-led uh, government. Uh, the fact that it has it, it, it has a strong core of uh, technocratic expertise. So I would term that its adaptive capacity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've seen over several decades uh, that the PAP has very strong uh, authoritarian, uh, hegemonic, sometimes uh, even majoritarian uh, tendencies. And what we think Singapore needs, and also what the PAP, we argue in the book, what the PAP uh, is in the PAP's own long-term interests is for its adaptive capacity to come to the fore, right? To take charge, uh, rather than to succumb to the easy temptation uh, and the lure of, um, you know, resorting to hardball authoritarian methods. Because in the long run, that is what is going to cause polarization and division in Singapore. And, and looking like um, now that it's a few months after GE 2020 and we have the new MPs in Parliament and so on, um, how viable do you think the prospect of this reinv reinvented PAP is? Well, uh, most of uh, my friends, and it's probably true of you too, Donald, uh, are extremely sceptical of our... <laughs> presumption that the PAP is capable of change, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I talked, uh, uh, mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, some of our ideas may seem um, radical to, to sort of conservative years. But frankly, I expect, you know, even more um, uh, resistance uh, to the anti-PAP crowd who are convinced that, no, the, the PAP is beyond hope, that is incapable of change. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I think... Um, got together to write this book because, you know, even though we are skeptical, uh, we're not cynical, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, history tells us that, no, change can come from any direction, right? If you look at uh, um, even uh, the, 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 the uh, massive, you know, great reformers of the, say, the second half of the 20th century, mm -hmm. some of the greatest reforms uh, that have changed the world have not come from revolutionaries outside the party, right? They, they've come from within. Uh, the ultimate, of course, being Deng Xiaoping in the <laughs> Chinese Communist Party, but think about uh, uh, Myanmar, right? Who would have expected that, uh, you know, that, uh, that um, the quantum leap in uh, Myanmar's progress would have come from uh, within the regime, right? Mm -hmm. And the great uh, democracy uh, champion would have turned out to be such a disappointment, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, um, so, so the truth is we can never predict, right? We can never predict where exactly positive, progressive change is gonna come from. And as long as that's the case, as, as long as that's, uh, um, that we, we want to um, uh, do our part in suggesting to the ruling party, which of course is still dominant, mm -hmm. right? And it is it should be within itself to take Singapore in a direction that is uh, positive for itself as well as positive for the um, uh, for the country. Yeah. Uh, 
do we see signs that this is actually happening? Uh, not yet. It may be too early. Um, I think most of the early signs um, have been uh, disappointing, though I don't think it's surprising to either Donald and me. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think just to add on, uh, so Charis made the case that it is within the party's ability, right? So it's able to reform if, if it chooses to. I think that there's also a strong argument to be made that it should reform uh, in the interests uh, of Singapore mm -hmm. because, you know, realistically, we do not think that there will be somebody or a party that's able to take over the reins of government in the next or maybe even the next two elections. Mm -hmm. So minimally, we should expect, you know, to have to live with a PAP government for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And 10 years is a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is just nine months into 2020 and look how far, how, how quickly uh, we have struggled to cope with uh, the, the, the challenges and the disruptions of the pandemic. So, so 10 years is a long time. And so I think, you know, I mean, the central argument of the book is that, you know, uh, we do not have the luxury to say, well, we should simply uh, wait for an alternative to emerge, that the PAP is incapable of reform. We shouldn't even uh, put any of our eggs in that basket. Uh, so, so here's the argument. So, so this is the argument for why it should reform, not just that it can reform, right? But, but I agree, uh, Charon, that it's probably too early to tell. Uh, but I have to say also that the early signs are not encouraging, right? <laughs> the signs, I mean, the the, the promised soul searching. I don't see it having been done. I don't see it having resulted in any sort of uh, uh, significant opening up of the political space. I don't see it resulting in any significant shift in, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, attitudes towards uh, equality and redistribution, for instance. And if you look at the last couple of months, you know, we, we've had reminders that things are not well, right? Uh, you know, things are not well with the criminal justice system. Things are not well with, uh, uh, for instance, the way, you know, the party tends to go after its critics and its dissenters. Uh, so, so as, as Sharon says, we are, we are skeptical, but, but, but we are also somewhat hopeful. Uh, uh, and if you take the long view, it is actually in the party's interest uh, and, and well within its, its, its ability uh, to pursue those reforms we suggest in the book. We've spoken about how you're skeptical about the prospect of the PAP being able to change. But have you seen any signs or recent developments that point in the opposite direction? <laughs> Not really. Well, I guess the, the most obvious would be the um, the anointing of uh, Pritam Singh as uh, mm -hmm. uh, leader of the opposition, right? which is, I think, uh, an important recognition that um, the, the parliamentary opposition plays an, <clears throat> an important role. Uh, a role in, in our democracy, that, that would be one obvious one. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, the um, the signs of hope, you know, why is it that I uh, still want to believe, right, uh, uh, in spite of actually being a strong opposition sympathizer myself, right, and mm -hmm. I, I think both of us have stated in the book that we believe a, a bigger, stronger opposition is in the interests of Singapore. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, but so why do we still um, uh, hold out hope for the PAP? For me, it is less about uh, what appears in public and more about what surfaces in private conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because uh, you will find that um, across the board, I mean, across all sectors, no matter how high up they are, ordinary citizens who are, in fact, sympathetic to the KAP or even KAP voters, um, they know something is not quite right. Uh, and for me, I don't know about this, but this is true of Donald, you know, if I was not constantly getting that signal from my fellow Singaporeans who are, in fact, uh, either PAP voters or strongly uh, supportive of the PAP, uh, that they, they are keeping open minds, right? They, they themselves are ready for change. If I wasn't constantly getting that signal over the years, I would not have bothered to write this book, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, uh, so the the appetite for change, even among pro-establishment individuals in private, is there. Mm-hmm. That I'm convinced. Yeah, uh, we we don't hear it because uh, of media controls. Because Singapore, uh, unlike uh, you know most other cities of uh, uh, stature and education levels and so on, uh, is is uh, often kind of like afraid of its own voice. Yeah, uh, so people are so used to. Uh, uh, nobody speaking out of turn. That uh, you know, we keep many uh, reasonable views ourselves. Uh, but of course, we know from private conversations uh, uh, what people actually think. And and those signs, I think, um, well, should be worrying for those who uh, are uh, sticking to the belief that the PAP can continue with uh, business as usual. Uh, but it's hopeful for those of us uh, who believe that the uh, PAP can should change. And Donald, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Charon uh, that you know the the argument for a more open, more contestable, more competitive uh, political system uh, may seem you know like an oxymoron. Why, why should this be in the PAP's interests? Uh, but you know, I'm an economist, and you know, I. Most economists, we see the intrinsic inherent value of keen competition, right? Of uh, and and so even if one is an opposition supporter and one wants eventually uh, uh, an opposition party and or, or coalition of opposition parties to take over, uh, you don't want that to happen by default. You don't want that to happen because the PAP has decayed beyond uh, repair or redemption, right? You want that to be the result of. Right, keen competition uh, where the opposition or an alternative party emerges because it shows itself to be as competent, if not more competent, uh, of the uh, uh, than the PAP. Uh, so, so just from the perspective of you know what makes for resilient uh, systems, and the answer is competition uh, and 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 keen selection, right? Mm-hmm. Keen selection pressures. Just from that argument from. Uh, uh, you know what makes for resilient political systems. You know we think it is in the interests uh, of Singapore, uh, not just of the PAP, that the PAP is able to accept and embrace uh, a more diverse, a more contestable, a more competitive uh, political system. Yeah, you know the, the the value of competition is so readily apparent to most Singaporeans. It's it's common sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's common sense from uh, everything around us. You know, the, the fact that we have high quality, high compute, you know, uh, incredible computing devices uh, in our pockets in the form of smartphones, right? It's because uh, IT and telecom is an extremely competitive uh, industry, right? Uh, if you're a football fan, you know that uh, a Liverpool that had to uh, win the championship. By uh, in competition with Manchester City, 
uh, is a superior club mm -hmm. than it would have been if its competition was Tranmere Rovers. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, so, so it is not a zero-sum game. You know, if you wish uh, well for Singapore, uh, opposition supporters should actually be hoping that the PAP ups its game, mm -hmm. which it can if it wants, and PAP supporters should be hoping that the opposition is allowed to up its game mm -hmm. by uh, having a more contestable and fair political uh, scheme. Well, not just the opposition, also critics of all kinds, civil society, etc. All this is good uh, to to bring the PAP up to the Premier League of, of, uh, of uh, uh, political organizations. As now, I think it is underperforming precisely because it has made the uh, competitive landscape so monopolistic that it has shielded itself from uh, the, the, the purifying power of competition in the mistaken idea that, you know, if, if you clear public policy of all this untidy politics, you're going to make uh, um, decisions faster and more efficiently, mm -hmm. uh, which may be true if you make your decisions faster, but they're not necessarily better decisions. Uh, competition makes you more able and makes the outcome superior, even if you come, you, you, you arrive at them uh, in, a, in a messier way. And um, post-GE, do you think that the opposition has been performing well in parliament? Like, are they bringing that competition that you're talking about? Well, I, I, I've been quite impressed by some of the new uh, members of parliament, uh, you know, people like Gerald Kiam, of course, Jameis, everybody talks about Jameis Lin, mm -hmm. but also folks like, you know, that uh, nominated, uh, the, the non-constituency members of parliament like Hazel Poir mm -hmm. and Dong Manwai. I think they bring uh, fresh ideas. They bring, uh, you know, they are not uh, simply, uh, you know, making up the numbers for the opposition, but they generate, they, you know, they have proposed genuine policy alternatives. Now, we may disagree with those policy alternatives, uh, but the process of debating them, the process of, uh, you know, identifying what is might be worth thinking about and what is clearly not doable, what is wouldn't be, wouldn't make uh, good for good policy. That process is valuable in itself, right? It's, it's valuable for mm -hmm. exploring the policy space and, you know, making sure that we have not uh, left out any uh, deserving policy options. It's also useful for general political literacy. I mean, look at the debate over the minimum wage, if not for the fact that uh, Dr. James Lim uh, made a you know, spirited defense, spirited case for it. I don't think we would have that kind of debate. Now, I'm actually not for a minimum wage, mm -hmm. but that's not the point, right? The point is that uh, the idea deserves deeper study. The, the idea deserves uh, an evidence-based, evidence-led debate. Mm -hmm. And I think he helped to uh, at least start, start that debate, right? Whether or not you agree with the idea is almost secondary. Uh, uh, Charon, do you have anything to add to that? Yes. I mean, echoing uh, Donald's point that, you know, you don't have to be a, a fan of, say, the Workers' Party's platform uh, to appreciate the superior political skills it has demonstrated in the during the elections and after. Uh, this actually is not entirely new. I would say that over the last three elections, uh, the Workers' Party has um, had the best election machine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, superior to PAP. Uh, it has been more on message, it has been more disciplined, uh, and it has um, uh, demonstrated steel under fire. Mm -hmm. yeah? uh, 
uh, it has it has shown that these individuals, uh, even though their CVs are nowhere near as impressive as the CVs of uh, the KP front bench or even its back benches, uh, these individuals have been able to raise their game, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which goes back to the point uh, we were making earlier about the value of competition. I mean, if, if you want to see what competition and constant scrutiny uh, and baptisms of fire do, uh, just compare the, you know, the, the leadership abilities uh, of, say, uh, Pritam Singh and Sylvia Lin, compared to their equivalence in the uh, uh, in the PAP, mm -hmm. um, they're different, right? And what, why are they different? They're different because uh, Pritam and Sylvia had to, to get to where they are, had to endure, what, a decade or more uh, of unfriendly media, of people twisting their words, of uh, harassment, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the game being so, so completely skewed against them, right? Uh, Whereas in the front benches of the government, um, and in fact throughout the establishment, what you're seeing is um, uh, individuals underperforming uh, with in extremely impressive credentials, but uh, showing what uh, you know being shielded from constant competition does uh, to one's mind, to one's ability to deal with the unpredictable. Yeah, uh, most of the time. Um, this is not uh, readily apparent uh, for the simple reason that most of the time, uh, the you know PAP leaders benefit from a very friendly uh, media environment and public mm -hmm. sphere. Yeah, um, but of course, with elections, suddenly it's different, right? Mm -hmm. With elections during the election campaign, uh, suddenly you have um, a barrage of criticism. Everything you say will be immediately challenged because everyone's focused, and that's what elections are about. And suddenly you see um, uh, ministers who should be capable of much better mm -hmm. uh, foundering. And mm -hmm. So why are they foundering? They're foundering because they're simply not used to it. This should be, uh, to me, it should be a worry not only for um, the, the PAP, but for Singapore generally, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're counting on our leaders uh, to compete, not just with, come on, small parties like the Workers' Party. They're counting on leaders uh, to, uh, you know, to, to have a battle of wits to uh, you know, to crash swords with uh, you know far greater um, 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 challenges, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the in the world beyond, with far bigger countries, which are with with, uh, uh, with, uh, with leaders who have far more to draw on, um, and you know, I, I wish that the um, the government uh, viewed the uh, you know normal politics, whether it is competition with uh, the opposition or dealing with civil society and dissidents and so on, as a kind of a very, you know, forgiving training ground for far bigger battles, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so just let it happen. You know, don't don't overprotect your emerging leaders uh, too much because uh, that is not going to prepare them for the far more serious competition that is awaiting them outside of Singapore's shops. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, I mean, uh, in the publicity material for the book, I noticed you guys mentioned the threat of um, identity politics, populist nationalism, nativism, the erosion of trust in public institutions like you see overseas. And you warned that, it, um, that the 
government needs to be prepared to deal with this. Do you see signs of such issues already taking root in Singapore? Yes, I mean, this is um, uh, quite uh, distressing and even alarming to me, right? Mm -hmm. The the way in which the establishment has been uh, prepared to play with fire. Uh, first of all, through its ultras or its trolls, uh, but even uh, from voices from within the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there is um, a very slim uh, line between sort of being uh, nationalistic and being um, exclusivist and, you know, uh, inculcating an us versus them attitude. And once this kind of genie gets out of the bottle, it's very hard to tame, mm-hmm. yeah? Uh, I think all the evidence around the world suggests that, you know, in, in a world where identity politics so easily spins out of control, mm-hmm. uh, the responsible thing to do uh, is to promote more inclusive values where people feel united around principles, mm-hmm. not around national identity and, of course, certainly not around race and so on, but not even around national identity, mm-hmm. um, or at least not around uh, a, a narrow sense of national identity. Yeah. Um, and so it's worrying to me that uh, uh, this uh, that this very dangerous uh, uh, populist uh, genie uh, is being released in Singapore, uh, mainly to deal with uh, the, the critics of the PAP. Are there signs that already that it's uh, maybe gotten get, getting out of hand? Uh, well, I would say some uh, certainly some of the xenophobia that we already see around mm-hmm. us um, is is an early warning sign. Mm. Yeah, I mean we conclude the book with a chapter that you know Charon did most of the writing uh, called "Riding the Populist uh, Tiger," and and it you know it starts with uh, a review of you know the the. the Older Singaporeans might recall that when the PAP uh, you know, sort of worked with or exploited uh, the, the mobilizational ability of uh, the, the communists in Singapore, they called that gambit, right? That strategy, riding the tiger. Mm-hmm. It was a day, I mean, it was called riding the tiger because they knew it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do you make sure that you jump off the tiger before you are you know, consumed by it? Uh, and, and you could make a case for that because in the in the fifties, in the early sixties, it was the communists who had the you know political skill and the mobilizational ability, uh, and and of course the support of uh, Ch- uh, Chinese voters. And so it made sense for the PAP electorally and politically to uh, to, to to try to harness that 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 tiger. Uh, but as we argue, or as Chairman argues in this final chapter, there is very little reason. Uh, for the PAP to ride the populist tiger. In fact, there are more risks. There are far more risks than whatever short-term benefits uh, there might be. Uh, the biggest risk, of course, is that it begins to undermine uh, our uh, ability of the technoc- of, of our elite technocracy to make sensible, uh, long-term oriented. Uh, evidence-based policy, because one of the things that populist movements around the world, the one thing they share in common is a deep distrust of uh, elites, a deep distrust of technocrats, a deep distrust of expertise and science and reason. Mm. Um, So when the PAP tries to make use or tries to exploit these populist tendencies, it is very very dangerous for no clear benefit. I do not see, or we do not see, Mm -hmm. 
political benefits might be had from exploiting this sort of exclusivist, us versus them nationalism, uh, this sort of aggressive reactionary populism mm-hmm. uh, that, that we've seen, in, in particularly after 2015, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a strategy that, you know, unlike the, uh, you know, uh, the communist tiger of the 50s and 60s, where I think there was a clear political logic to that. Uh, we really don't see why this would be something which would, you know, would end well uh, if the ruling party continues to try to exploit populism and populist sentiment and exclusive nationalism in Singapore. Nothing wrong with nationalism and patriotism mm-hmm. if it is of the inclusive, civic, uh, uh, embracing sort. Uh, but what we've seen uh, in the last few years, certainly before GE, was the sort of very divisive, polarizing sort of discourse that are not too dissimilar to that employed by Viktor Orban in Hungary when he when he rails goes after liberals and 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 and, and critics, uh, not unfamiliar, not completely dissimilar to the tactics, the authoritarian methods of Vladimir Putin in in Russia. So it is very worrying, precisely because Singapore's. Ability to compete in this, you know, uh, in, in in this world, it's it's this reliance on reason, it's this reliance on evidence-based policy making, and and riding the populist tiger undermines that that capacity, uh, and 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 robs us of the, our ability to to make sensible, long-term, rational policies. Yeah, I mean, in the 1950s, no historian would uh, disagree that it was uh, empirically, you know, beyond doubt that the mobilizational power, the connection with the ground lay with the, you know, the, the leftist or communist mm-hmm. uh, wing of the uh, PAP. Mm-hmm. Right? So it was a completely rational decision on the part of the, uh, of the moderates uh, that, you know, that if they wanted to get anywhere, it would have to be an alliance mm-hmm. uh, with this very powerful global force uh, way to the left of them. Yeah. Uh, as Donald says, there is absolutely no evidence that uh, that is actually the case now. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, far from it. Instead, instead of what the uh, PAP has been uh, doing is riding on uh, uh, extreme minority within the PAP. Mm-hmm. Um, to, and, and what is the benefit extremely short term? You know, uh, these uh, trolls are unleashed uh, against, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, civil society critics against activists and so on, in, in a way to harass them and to uh, push them to the margins, right? And to wave the flag and you know, uh, try and convince Singaporeans that anyone who dares question some of these uh, uh, PAP policies are somehow anti-national. Uh, but the, the, the benefit is short-term, and as Donald has um, explained you know, so clearly, uh, it is counterproductive, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because... Um, the uh, so here, ironically, what we're actually calling for is for the PAP to remember its roots, right? So, mm-hmm. so this is only the, the one aspect of what needs to change that we're not actually asking the PAP to uh, uh, be, uh, you know, to to sort of uh, remake itself. And quite the contrary, we're asking you to go back to the future, right? Because there are very few leaders in the world that were as anti-populist as Lee Kuan Yew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew understood very clearly that the, the dangers of, uh, uh, of over-powerful public opinion, 
right? Uh, he, he, he was suspicious of the popular will. Most of everything that he did as prime minister can be explained by that very simple principle that he had, right? That it was his job as prime minister uh, to kind of um, uh, make space for his technocrats to think long term for the uh, interests of Singapore. And the way he did that uh, was to push public opinion out of the way. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he did this by controlling the press, controlling the unions, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 he probably went overboard with it, but the wisdom in his approach, um, uh, you know, is it, worth thinking about today, right? That uh, the, re the recognition that good government doesn't only involve um, uh, being true to the popular will, it also involves. Uh, uh, reason, empowering institutions that are based on reason and long-term thinking and so on. Yeah? Uh, once you introduce this, um, this uh, populist logic into Singapore political discourse, and as, as Donald says, you know, mm -hmm. what unites populism around the world is a very strong anti-establishment, anti-reason, right. anti-discourse. Once you introduce that into Singapore, and there, uh, the logic of it is basically, no, if you have more people on your side, you are right. Mm -hmm. yeah? If you speak louder, you're right. Yeah? And this is precisely the logic of uh, the PAP's ultras, unfortunately also reinforced by uh, some of its um, uh, political leaders who should know better. Yeah? Um, once you do that, you're undermining uh, the, the very roots on which uh, 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 PAP ideology was built. Many would say that the uh, typically Singaporean way of dealing with these kind of threats that we spoke about um, is to legislate and pass laws that protect the people. And one of the ways that we've seen this manifested is in POFMA. Um, now with the GE behind us, do you think that um, POFMA had that expected chilling effect on political discourse in Singapore? Well, I think what we have seen uh, in the case of POFMA is that... Um, uh, yes, I mean, ostensibly, this is in order to sort of uh, strengthen the infrastructure of democracy by making sure that uh, public discourse is based on a uh, strong shared foundation of facts, right? So in principle, yes, that's a good uh, target to aim for. Um, but again, here we have uh, another example of where the instinct is to use this kind of legislation uh, to uh, protect the PAP from uh, unbridled debate. Yeah? Uh, this is, of course, um, uh, most strongly encapsulated uh, in the part of POFMA that defines the public interest uh, as uh, things that maintain confidence in government, yeah? which uh, basically means that if you have said something that is not 100% correct, Mm -hmm. uh, and it suggests that the government doesn't deserve such high competence, you are then profitable, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what if it is true that the government deserve, doesn't deserve that uh, degree of confidence, then they kind of, um, that leads to a lack of accountability, doesn't it? But And yet that is what we have. We have uh, a law that basically says that more confidence in government is good, less confidence in government is bad, mm -hmm. irrespective of what, <laughs> what the, whether the uh, particular agency deserves that current level of confidence. This is dangerous. This is dangerous uh, in terms of um, 
the kind of accountability that we should expect uh, powerful institutions uh, to have. The, the, the other problem, of course, with POFMA, which uh, uh, was, um, really, you know, was demonstrated quite clearly during the elections, is that it is one-sided. Right. And so yes, again, it is a worthwhile um, uh, ambition to make sure that elections are clean and fought on the basis of facts, that uh, candidates shouldn't get to um, uh, to undermine other candidates with lies. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, that's a principle that's universally accepted, uh, you know, in, in democracies around the world. The question is, how do we actually enforce it? Uh, the, the closest equivalence would be legislation in France and Canada mm -hmm. that uh, do, in fact, um, allow the state to intervene in cases where candidates, uh, you know, complain that lies are being said about them. But the crucial difference is this. Uh, quite commonsensically, in both France and Canada, mm -hmm. any candidate can make that complaint. Mm. Uh, it's not just the ruling party's candidate mm -hmm. that gets to complain about um, uh, about untruths. Uh, and yet, but in Singapore, you have a situation where the um, the POFMA powers um, during elections are delegated to um, uh, senior civil servants mm -hmm. uh, who work for ministers who happen to be election candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, of course, you could say the system hasn't been tested. Right. So, uh, so yes, uh, Profma was used um, against position messages during this uh, campaign. But maybe in theory, if Raisa Khan uh, had complained um, to uh, the relevant ministry, I'm not even sure what that would be. Uh, I guess Home Affairs. Mm -hmm. That look as an election candidate. Uh, she has, if there has been a misleading um, and manipulative statement made by uh, the PAPHQ, if she had made a sort of complaint, uh, it is uh, in theory possible that mm -hmm. the, um, the, the relevant public uh, servant would have issued um, uh, a POFMA directive right. against, against PAPHQ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm skeptical whether that would have actually happened. Yeah. So in effect, what you have is um, uh, correction orders that are the are a weapon of only one party, the mm -hmm. whichever party happens to be in power. Right. Uh, that uh, you know I think should offend anyone's intuitive sense of fair play. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's one problem with it. But again, the, uh, to, I go back to the, uh, to the issue that I brought back earlier. I, I think even uh, PAP supporters and members of the PAP should not be particularly impressed with this power mm -hmm. because it is the kind of power that makes your side lazy. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to insulate uh, your, your leaders from criticism to this extent and uh, uh, and give them such a big advantage in in political competition. There's a, you know like Liverpool only getting to fight Tranmere Rovers. Mm -hmm. It is likely that even a Mohamed Salah would not be the kind of player that he was. Mm -hmm. He is Mohamed Salah because he gets to 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 square off against Vincent Company mm -hmm. from Man City, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't see how this even makes sense for for uh, the PAP. And with the many correction orders that have been handed out so far, do you think that they've had the expected chilling effect? 
um, on political discourse in the country? I, I differ. I differ a bit there from many of the early critics of the uh, of Pokma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always uh, maintained that uh, number one, that I don't ex- I don't expect um, the uh, Pokma to be used in its most extreme way. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that it would uh, be largely correction orders, and therefore, uh, what I would call uh, professional players in mm-hmm. politics. Yeah, and this would include. Um, uh, opposition politicians, it would include Singaporean journalists, civil society activists, and so on, who do have the bandwidth to look closely at cases, at precedents, to look closely at the law, would be able to make calculated risks and, and then conclude that basically it can be business as usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd agree that there was uh, little, hardly any chilling effect on that group of um, communicators. Mm-hmm. Yeah? opposition, professional media, and so on. But uh, for the wider society, no, I do think that it's been a chilling effect, right? Uh, I do think that uh, it has, uh, for example, spooked uh, foreign media mm-hmm. that don't have such uh, bandwidth to pay such close attention to developments in Singapore. I think it spooks uh, ordinary Singaporeans and academics who may be uh, who may think about writing an op-ed or letter to the forum page of the Straits Times and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, here's another kind of gray area where they, they, they're not quite sure whether they will get into serious trouble and and uh, uh, and therefore err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking as an academic, well, even if one has an academic has the bandwidth to think about you know, what's permissible and not under POFMA, why should he have to expend that sort of cognitive energy? Uh, so shouldn't he just write as a researcher or academic? Uh, because there are rules and norms in that, you know, uh, that govern academics' behavior and writings, right? So why, why sh- even if the, we have the spare bandwidth to worry about, uh, you know, what the legislation says we can or cannot do, uh, I think it is, you know, just a poor use of our bandwidth uh, or mental resources just to have to worry about and, and to think and to second guess what what might what would be tolerated and what might not. Okay, and just a final one, going back to the book. Um, if there's one thing that you could tell potential readers out there, what's what's the most eye-opening thing that you hope they will take away from reading the book? Well, I hope that the book uh, is the start of many conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we didn't uh, write this uh, in order to have the last word or because we think we have uh, the answers, right? right. Uh, this is an intervention in um, uh, public debate at what we see as a very important time uh, in Singapore's history, where right. there, are, uh, there are choices to be made for Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, including at very highest levels. Yeah? And uh, we should not deny ourselves uh, those open choices, uh, because uh, you know, in, in the mistaken view that this is somehow that this is a, this is a time for uh, for uh, unity and one track thinking, when in fact it is really a time for you know uh, expanding our, our minds uh, and uh, about what might be possible. I think most of all, uh, we hope that within the ruling party uh, and its supporters, there are individuals who are prepared to ask these bigger questions, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just to ask themselves uh, what 
has worked and therefore what they must cling on to for dear life. Uh, but uh, also to consider uh, the, the possible costs of the formula that they have chosen uh, and the, the benefits of expanding their minds and, uh, you know, and choosing another way. Okay, well, thank you very much, Cherian. That's, that's a great response. And uh, thank you and Donald for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Danny. And that's it for this week's episode of On The Mic. The show has been brought to you by Yahoo Singapore. And you can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'll have more great content coming your way real soon, so do stay tuned. Until next time, this is Danny Osman wishing all of you a great week ahead.